with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 10. If you're visiting, we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation. Uh, you showed up at a very, very interesting time. This is what we do. We walk through books of the Bible section by section, and this morning we're at Revelation chapter 10. Last week, our senior pastor preached chapters 8 and 9 on the first six trumpets, heralding the judgment of God against an unrepentant people. And this morning, we're going to look at chapters 10 and 11, which form an interlude of sorts between the sixth and seventh trumpet. Well, before we read God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Almighty Father, we come before You now because we are eager to hear from You. We don't want to gather to hear the opinions of men, but to hear the counsel of our Almighty God. We live in a broken world, full of trials, all kinds of challenges abounding, and we need a divine perspective. We need help from above. So I pray now that you would speak to us, Father. Speak to us through your word. I pray that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that we might behold wondrous things in this book, that you would send us out with fresh faith to be courageous witnesses in our community, to live faithfully, holy lives for your glory. We pray this in the mighty name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. We've got a long passage this morning, but let's fix our gaze upon God's Word, starting in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. This is God's holy and authoritative Word. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets." Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. 
Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stood before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. (coughs) Then... The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Father, I pray that you would please bless the preaching of your word. Well, Scripture is full of all kinds of words. There are words that are very hard to understand, words that are very easy to understand. There are words like love your neighbor as yourself, which is easy to understand. Difficult to apply, but easy to understand. This passage is not one of those passages. There's a lot going on here. There is a lot of detail. There is a lot of truth packed into these two chapters. This passage is ridiculously rich with detail and imagery. 
And while some might take several weeks to preach through these two chapters, I've been given 40-ish minutes, and I just spent about eight reading this text to you. So pray for me. While that said, there is a lot of detail included in these two chapters, but there is one main point that I want to share with you this morning, one main point. While commentators look at this text, and I spent a lot of time in hundreds of pages of commentaries this week and looking at how different people take all these different images because there is so much here and they don't agree on every detail, but they do agree on the central thrust, on the main point of what we're, what our eyes are being drawn to here, and that's what I want to present to you this morning. One idea that we see in this text from beginning to end that might shape our lives this afternoon and, and tomorrow morning as you go back to work or to school, one truth that would shape the way that you relate to those around you, one truth that will help you as you navigate trials and troubles in this world. What we see emphasized throughout this passage, through these two chapters, is that confidence in God's sovereignty compels courageous Christian witness. Confidence in God's sovereignty compels courageous Christian witness. So here's what I want to do. I want to take that truth and I want to walk through this passage, through these two chapters, by looking at five theological signposts to guide our way. Five signposts, you think of navigating a trail of hiking through the woods, and you have these signposts that help you find your way. Because there's a lot of ways that we could get lost in the details here. We could look at one tree and miss the forest. So five theological signposts to help us have a greater vision of the glory of God that compels our courageous Christian witness in this world. Theological signpost number one, God is absolutely sovereign over all time and all creation. Look at chapter 10. In the beginning, you have right away this angel coming down out of heaven. Now, every time an angel appears in Scripture, they are always something to behold. Often they respond, uh, they, they show up and they say immediately, fear not, because they are fearsome. They are intimidating. People see them and they fall down and they are fearful. But this angel is unmatched in description comparatively with any other angel in Scripture, so much so that there are many commentators who actually believe that this angel is a type of Christ, that he is a vision of Christ, that John is seeing Jesus coming down to earth. I don't think that's the case, not only because Jesus is nowhere called an angel, he's nowhere called to be or described as an angel, but also he would have no need to swear by him who lives forever and ever, as we read later in the chapter. But here's what we do see in this angel. We see him coming down out of heaven. He is wrapped in a cloud. He has a rainbow over his head. His face is like the sun. His legs like pillars of fire. The scroll is open in his hand. He has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. <coughs> when he calls out, he does not speak as a normal man, but it is like a lion roaring. And when he speaks, the seven thunders sounded. He declares with authority, what is to come. This angel, friends, is awesome. In the truest sense of that word, awesome. He is worthy of awe and wonder. To see this angel, one would certainly fall down in fear and reverence. 
Everything about this angel speaks of power and authority and control. This is just an angel. This is one angel, but he represents God. He comes down as an ambassador of heaven. He comes down to represent God, to point to God, to speak on God's behalf. And if this angel is so mighty, if this angel is so awesome and so fearsome, how much greater is the God that he represents? This angel comes bearing visible witness to the sovereign power of God, to the faithfulness of God. As you see referenced here with the rainbow, that calls to mind what? God's covenant with Noah. As you see the clouds that remind us of God's presence, how he went before his people Israel in the wilderness. And the way that he stands upon the world, he is just standing there with one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. And that just screams power and authority and control. He is not there timidly shaking, but standing there in confidence. This entire passage just speaks, as one author, one commentator wrote, of God's ownership and his authority. And then you have this very interesting bit here where John is about to write down, it says that the seven thunders spoke. They sounded. What is it that they said? And John is about to write it down to tell us what they said. And then this angel says, do not write it down. Why is that? Don't you want to know what it was that they said? Why, 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 does he tell, why is he told not to write it down? Grant Osborne, one of the commentators on this passage, wrote something I found very compelling on this note. He writes, John is being told to affirm God's sovereign control over the judgments proclaimed in the thunders. And then is prohibited from revealing the content to his readers. The major message is one of sovereignty. God is in control. And the saints do not need to know all the details. And we like to know all the details, don't we? We want to know why. We want to know all the ins and outs. And yet, God does not tell us everything that we want to know, but He does tell us everything that we need to know. Isn't that reassuring? Doesn't that give you peace? Doesn't that give you perspective there, that we can trust Him who is in control. Who, who here has not ever been on a car trip with, with young children who ask all kinds of questions about, what about this? What happens if this happens? What if the car doesn't make it? What if the park is closed before we arrive? And, and you tell them, son, we've thought through those details. It's okay. Dad's thought through it. Mom's thought through it. We, it's under control. We tell them that because we want to give them peace. I want my wife and kids to be at peace, not to be concerned with all these things, and yet I'm just a man. Here we have the sovereign God over all of creation who numbers the hairs on our heads, who controls all things and sustains all things. And he here is pictured as totally sovereign and absolutely in control. So before we give any thought to what we must do or what kind of church we must be, we need to give account, we need to give our thoughts, we must see God for who He truly is. And what we see in chapters 10 and 11 and throughout this book is that our God is absolutely in control. He is sovereign. He's sovereign over this angel. He is sovereign over the judgments. He speaks a word and calls forth thunders and lightnings, earthquakes and more. Our Almighty God creates all things, sustains all things. He knows all things. He is the one who, verse 6, 
Verse 6, look at it. It says that He lives forever and ever. He created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it. Everything that they know, everything that we know. And when God calls forth this angel, when God calls forth John, when He calls forth you and me to join Him in this work in this world, don't make the mistake of thinking it's because He needs us. God's not just eagerly waiting now. You know, Ken and I, we, we are hoping that you will join the prayer team for the building. We, will hope, we hope that you serve in various ways because we, we need help. God does not need any of us. He can accomplish His purposes without your help or mine. He involves us because He loves us. It is a gift that He calls us and invites us to come along, come along, join me in what I'm doing. See what I'm doing. He fills us with His Spirit, and He empowers us as we obey. One of the most critical takeaways from the book of Revelation and from these chapters is the rock-solid conviction that our God is in control, that He is sovereign, that He sits on His throne, and that He is, is, he, he is worried for nothing. He does not fret. He does not wring His hands. He is not wondering, how am I going to fix this? He is executing His plan even now as you and I sit here this morning. And that should give us confidence. That should give us peace. That should give us joy. That should give us courage as we face whatever the Lord brings our way. So theological signpost one, our God is sovereign. Theological signpost number two, God's judgment is certain. Now, we heard an entire sermon about this last week from chapters 8 and 9, so I'm not going to recapitulate all of that. But here in this passage, we see when the seven thunders sounded, this is a pronouncement of judgment. When the angel says that there will be no more delay, he is saying the end is about to come. When John is given the scroll to eat, he is told that it will be bitter to his stomach. It will not be pleasing uh, in, in digestion. When we read that He is commissioned to prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings, we understand this to be a message that He is called to proclaim repentance. And then throughout chapter 11, we read about these two witnesses. We read about the outer court being handed over to be trampled and the judgments of the two witnesses and the references to the second and third woes ahead of the final trumpet. And the entire context of this passage, of this section of the book of Revelation is one of God judging the unrepentant, those who do not turn to Him, those who do not bow their knee to the King of all the earth. We have seen seven seals afflicting the earth. Six of the seven trumpets have now been blown in cataclysmic judgment. Seven thunders are now ready to bring the final judgment and the seven bowls of wrath. The point in all this is the reminder of what we heard last week about the danger of indifference, the, the danger of indifference and of rebellion against God. Our lives matter. God is calling to us. We live in a broken world surrounded by men and women who, like us, apart from Christ, as we heard in this testimony from Janet earlier, we want to live life according to our terms. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends all want to live life on their terms without respect to the author and creator of life. We want to do it our way. We live in a broken society that all kinds of destruction and chaos fills our news 
As we read about stories of war and, and crime, they come about as a result of the fall. Our world needs redemption. And that is precisely why God sent His Son Jesus to come into this world. Throughout history, God has spoken to us through prophets and the gift of His Word, and, and He calls all people everywhere to turn to Him in repentance because apart from the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus, every one of us deserves judgment. Every one of us stands before God, and we know that we fall short. And He gives us a message. The message that we receive and the message that we proclaim, it, it is not one of your best life now. It is not one of, of peace and, and ease you see in chapter 11 what kind of life Christians can anticipate this side of eternity. And it's not one of just enduring health and prosperity. What we proclaim is the reality of judgment apart from Christ and the gift of salvation that we are offered because of His shed blood for us. Now, we, we don't go about proclaiming this message with any kind of smug self-righteousness any kind of self-confident condescension, looking upon those less than us. No, we are those for whom Christ died. Our sin was so great that He had to shed His blood for us. And so we can go about as, as one beggar to another, pointing to where we find hope. I was reading this week about a man who had faithfully witnessed to uh, one of his neighbors for years but to no avail. He saw no fruit. He worked hard to study and to answer all of his moral and philosophical and theological objections. He handed him books. He took him to seminars, but he never saw any fruit until one day he, he had finally had to move away. Fast forward several years, and Michael, that's the guy who was, who was sharing this, got a call from his old neighbor and told him that he had become a Christian, that he was even taking seminary classes in pursuit of, of planting a church. What happened? What, what finally flipped the switch? Was it something I had said that you finally, that finally clicked? Was it a book? Did you, did you hear some intellectual, some philosopher, some apologist? What was it that finally broke through? You know, he said, he said someone had invited him to church, to a church service. And the pastor there preached about hell and eternal judgment, and it scared the snot out of him. And he surrendered to Christ right then and there. It was a legit, radical, immediate, comprehensive conversion that God saved him in that moment. And this man, this man was thinking, oh my goodness, like all these years I tried to present this respectable Christianity. I wanted to give him something that would appeal to his intellect, that was morally appeasable, that was intellectually satisfying, philosophically robust. And yet what this man needed and what many people in our community need is what so many of us are often so hesitant to talk about because, because we're embarrassed, because it's hard to talk about. He needed to know about the reality of judgment and hell, those uncomfortable doctrines that demonstrate, by contrast, the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ. We talk about being saved. Saved from what? That matters. The reality of judgment must be something that we 
reckon with, that we talk about. In other words, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. We don't want to speak about our faith in such a way that leaves non-Christians comfortable in their unbelief. If your neighbors, if your non-believing friends don't see that you're bothered by that, their lack of faith, they won't be bothered either. And this should lead us to compassion. This should lead us to humility. This should lead us to, uh, this should compel us to tear-filled appeals there should be a humble earnestness in our manner that underscores the reality of judgment because it is certain. It is coming. And we see in this passage that it is coming soon. So theological signpost two, judgment is certain. Signpost number three, God's presence goes before his people. Chapter 11 opens up with this. Again, you have all this interesting imagery. Look, I mean, just look through here. Chapter 10, okay, you've got this angel and the scroll, fairly straightforward. But now we enter chapter 11, and there is so much packed in here. And right away, a measuring rod. He's given a yardstick, and he's told to, to go and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship, but don't measure the outer court, it says. What is this about? What, what are, are we called to measure? <laughs> What is, what is going on here? What is this measuring? Well, Grant Osborne says about this, the idea here is one of ownership and protection. We can't spend a lot of time here, but the imagery comes from Ezekiel chapters 40 and following where Ezekiel is commissioned to go and measure the temple of God. He is given a vision, very similar to this. He is called to measure the temple of God. And then you look at chapter, verse, uh, chapter 48, the very last verse of the book of Ezekiel. He's measuring the temple for eight chapters. Cubit by cubit measures this and measures that, and, and you wonder what is going on. And then the very last phrase of the book, it says, the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. That was the total measurement of the city, of the temple of God. And it says, in the name of the city, from that time on shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Why is he measuring it all? He is saying, this belongs to me and I will dwell here among my people. My presence will go before them. My protection will cover them. Nothing will happen here apart from my sovereign control. That's what all the measuring means. It means that the Lord is there. He is present with His people. And that's exactly what the measuring means here in, in Revelation chapter 11. Those measured off by God in His temple, they are perfectly secure. That's you and I. That is every person who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are God's temple as the church, and we are secure in Him. We need to know that as we encounter this world, as we walk through this world, as we face troubles of all kinds, our God is with us that He goes before us, that nothing can happen to us apart from His sovereign purpose, and we can trust Him. That should give us great confidence. That should give us great comfort, great hope that nothing can happen apart from us. It is like the child walking across the street holding his father's hands. He knows that he is safe because his father is there. And we need to have confidence in this fact because God calls us to a mission. He sends us out, as Jesus says, as lambs amidst wolves. And were God not to go with us, we would have no hope of success. We would be devoured. But because of this truth, 
because God goes before us, because He measures us off, because we know that we are secure in Him, we can have great confidence in our sovereign God no matter the situation we find ourselves in. So signpost three, God's presence goes before us. Signpost four, persecution is guaranteed if you are a faithful Christian. And we need that last signpost because if we're going to be faithful in this world, Jesus doesn't paint a rosy picture. He says, you will be loved by all. Is that what he says? You will be welcomed. They will receive your message with thanksgiving. No, he says you will be hated by all. We have a picture of that here in chapter 11. How are these witnesses received? As they deliver this bittersweet message, as they deliver this message to the world, to the nations, to kings, how are they received? They are hated. Now, before we can get too far into this, we, we need to address questions because I know there are all kinds of questions here. We can't address every one of them, but who are these witnesses? Everybody wants to know, who are these witnesses? Am, am I one of them? We wonder. <laughs> we, we look around and we think, who will that be? Are these like superhuman people? They're able to pour forth fire from their mouth. You think, about Eli- you think about the way that they're described here, and you think about Elijah and Moses. They're, they're doing Elijah and Moses types things. So there's something, something being you know, drawn, our attention is drawn there. But look, at, look with me at verse 7. It says, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them. And kill them. Now flip over one page to chapter 13. In verse 5, it talks about this beast coming forth who is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. This sounds familiar already? And then in verse 7, it says, It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. These two witnesses are called olive trees and lampstands. It is said that the beast will make war on them and conquer them. And and then in the next chapter, it talks about the beast doing that to all of the saints. The point here is that these two witnesses represent God's people. These two witnesses represent the church. In other words... These two witnesses represent the church for all time, witnessing in the 1260 days, the 42 months, which is the church age, this present time. Every believer, past, present, and future are included here. And why are there two? We can't say for sure, but it would be, certainly be fitting with Deuteronomy 19 and 17 and elsewhere that a matter is established on the, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus sent out His witnesses two by two to proclaim the gospel. So what we want to take away from this section here, church, is that this passage is about us. This is about Redemption Hill Church. This is about you and me. In other words, these witnesses, their calling is our calling. Their mission is our mission. Their mandate is our mandate. We are called to be witnesses. 
and the imagery of the beast and the trials that the witnesses endure paint a picture of the way that this hostile world will react to our witnessing. We, we often get worried, how will people respond? Well, here we're told how they'll respond. They will respond with hostility. Those who are faithful to Christ, it demonstrates their faithfulness to proclaim a message of judgment and a call to repentance. Remember, if we wonder what, what, what about life now, is, that, is it like life then? I mean, back then they could go about preaching and, and how was that? Think about the context of, the, of that world. The original audience, the believers who heard this message originally, they lived in a world that was under true tyranny. We talk about tyranny in our world, but they were being put to death if they didn't bow the knee to Caesar. For them to be faithful follower of Jesus was to risk their economic well-being. They would get kicked out of the city. Their business would be burned down. We, we can identify with that on some level. It would, it would risk their social standing. They would not be well thought of. We, can, we, we get that. And for them, it also meant to risk their very lives. Now, few of us in this room are worried that we will be killed for our faith. We do have brothers and sisters around the world who right now, that is their reality. But it is certain, no doubt, whether we are put to death, whether we are simply mocked, and spit upon and canceled publicly, we will risk hostility. To be a faithful follower of Jesus in this day and age is to be hated by all. Now, the reason that this is included here, the reason that John includes this is to prepare us, just as we saw in the letters of uh, Revelation 2 and 3, to prepare us for suffering, to prepare us for hostility, to to prepare us for adversity. That is the context in which we are called to proclaim the hope of the gospel, to realize that in this world, we will not have it easy if we are faithful to the Lord. The world will not love you. The world will indeed hate you. In fact, I was just reading in my Bible reading this week in the book of James that friendship with the world, you remember what it's called? Friendship with the world is called enmity with God. How many of us try to be friends with the world? We want to be well-liked. We want to be well-thought of. We want to be respectable. We want to be well-thought of. John 16, 33, Jesus says to us, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Notice the location of the peace there, in him. He says, in the world... You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, it it just shouldn't surprise us that we have trouble. It shouldn't surprise us if people don't receive our message with gratefulness and praise. It should not surprise us if we endure hostility and adversity. To be a faithful disciple of Christ, to be a faithful follower means that we will endure that kind of adversity. If you're not enduring that kind of adversity, why is that? What is that about our witness that it just seems like everybody loves us? We want to be mindful about, we want to be faithful to the Lord. Again, does not mean we go around in smug self-righteousness, condescension, pointing fingers. We are those who need the blood of Christ to cover our sins, but it does mean we want to be faithful. We do not want to compromise. 
Again, in John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you're in good company. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Persecution is guaranteed, whatever that looks like. I mean, we, we don't need to see everything as like this great persecution as if our lives are being threatened at all times. But we should anticipate it. We should expect it. We should not be surprised. But notice that even in the midst of persecution, even as you read through chapter 11, as, as all this is going on and the beast is, is killing them, God is still in control. In fact, it, it's, a, it's one small note. You, talk, you hear this about the three and a half years. The 1260 days, 42 months equals three and a half years. That's how long they are proclaiming the message. And then it says that they died, and how long are they there dead? Three and a half days. Relatively brief amount of time. That's the point. It's just a, it's a brief amount of time. There will be suffering. Some of you will be put to death. But it's just a brief amount of time, and it is not worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. Friends, we, we want to cultivate courage to be courageous witnesses in this world to proclaim the hope of the gospel because God has commissioned us as such. That great commission that Jesus gave His disciples that extends to you and I today in Matthew 28 to go out into all the nations to make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you, that extends to us. Judgment is real. The time is short. The time is short. I don't know about you, but <laughs> I, I was just smacked in the face this last week with the brevity of life, with the shortness of the time. On Tuesday last week, I was up in Oklahoma for a funeral for a younger cousin of mine. She died in an apparent overdose. She left behind four young kids. I drove home from Oklahoma th Tuesday night. I got a call that another younger cousin died in an accident that night going home from that funeral. I'm driving there this afternoon to go lead that funeral tomorrow morning. And then in addition to that, my, my stepfather's mom is in her final days. Any day now, I'm, I'm waiting for that call to have another funeral. Neither of my cousins expected this. Tomorrow it will be Shocking grief for our family who lost two young family members in the prime of their life with young children who are now growing up without their moms. Not one of us is guaranteed tomorrow. I was just talking with my nephew this last week about this very topic. I said, but there, there's nothing to say that I won't die on my drive home today. There's not. And, and the same is true for neighbors and loved ones. Time is short. Eternity is long. We don't have forever, and neither do those around you. Will it make things uncomfortable if you broach the topic of your faith? Yes, I'm sure it will. But might you also lead them to salvation in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. And praise the Lord if He does that. Think of the man who is bold enough to share the gospel, Glenn, that man Glenn, who shared the gospel with Janet Darms all those years ago. He walks upon this woman selling flowers on the street and decides to tell her about the judgment to come. 
or about that story I shared a few minutes ago about the man who, upon hearing the threat of hell, surrendered immediately to Jesus Christ and was radically changed. That same God that saved like that, He saves today. He can save them. He can save you. He can save your neighbors, your unbelieving family and friends, and He wants to use you toward that end. It's a glorious calling. God can save anyone, and God can use anyone. Or perhaps you're in this room, and you're hearing this preacher talk about hellfire and brimstone, the stereotypical preacher, and you've never confessed your need for a Savior. Let today be your day of salvation. Let today be the day that you respond to Christ. Let this Word of God penetrate your heart. Lift your eyes and behold the glory of a God who paid your debt, who sent His Son Jesus to die for your, in your place. Whatever your past, He knows it all. And His grace is greater than your sin. So I want to encourage you today to come to Him and tell everyone you know. Final theological signpost. God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. As we turn the corner here in chapter 11 to verse 15 and and following, it's like you are driving one of those windy roads up the mountain in, in Colorado, and you turn that final bend, and you see this majestic view. That's what we're given here. We are given a picture of that final day. You see, this seventh trumpet is the last of the trumpets. It's the last thing of the seventh seal, and it ushers in the seven bowls of wrath. This is a picture of the very end. And you know that the book of Revelation repeats and gives us different images and different perspectives of that, but this is the the first picture. Now, we're going to hear a lot more about this once we get to Revelation 19, and that is going to be a glorious, glorious time as we survey that. But this chapter closes by shifting our view back from earth to heaven. Followed by joyful shouts of the hosts of heaven declaring that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. This chapter closes. You know know those familiar lines from the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we see happening here. It's the final answer to the Lord's Prayer. Psalm 2 is reversed. No longer will the nations rage. No longer will the peoples of the earth rebel against Him. Dennis Johnson, in his excellent commentary on this book, says, When the last trumpet sounds, such resistance will be a thing of the past. For royal dominion over the earth will belong to the Lord and His anointed King exclusively. Think about that reality. He will rule and the nations will be glad. He is in control. That's what we're seeing here. Our God is sovereign. He is in control. The end is already written. And we can take confidence. We can take joyful confidence in His sovereign plan, and eagerly anticipate the glory that is to come. Death will be no more. 
No more funerals. No more hard phone calls. No more crying. No more pain. No more aging. The end of persecution and hardship will come. No more wars. The nations will be glad. And the saints will all rejoice. There will be worship that shakes as it resounds the heavens. And look at verse 18. The time for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. Not rewards only for those super saints, whoever they are, but for the small and the great. The Lord sees every act of service done in His name. He sees every cold of cup, every cup of water given in His name. He sees every deed. Moms in this room, that, that you, weary, you, you serve in weariness in the middle of the night and, and nobody sees, the baby will not remember that, God sees. That, those faithful prayers that you're praying for those unbelieving friends and family members, God hears those. And He will reward you. There will be a glorious day where we will see the Lord face to face, where we will see His smiling face looking down upon us, where He welcomes us, where He wipes away every tear. And that day is guaranteed to come. This is certain. It is sure. That day is coming soon. And it is worth singing about. It is worth telling everyone you know about, both in joyful proclamation, the good news of the gospel of salvation, but also in sober warning of the reality of judgment. The truth that we see here is that God is in control. He is working even now all things toward that day. And therefore, we can take confidence in His sovereign plan as we step out in courageous faith, proclaiming the gospel among the neighborhoods and nations. I'd like to invite the band to come back to the stage and lead us in one final song as we anticipate that day where the nations will rejoice together with us. As we sing this final song, I want to encourage you to look at these lyrics, to think about the words that we're singing, to set your mind there in heaven as we contemplate this, praising the name of our God for the redemption that we have received that Jesus bought with His own blood for the salvation that He has delivered to us. And pray even now that the Lord would stir afresh our faith and joy 